Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Venting Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting. A very important call for all of you who are undergoing chemotherapy treatments at this time, and you're going to learn a lot from this program today, and um, it's really um, a credit to all of you that you've spent the next hour with us, with us on this program. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and because of all those other organizations and your interest in the program today, um, we've been able to reach a lot of you on the call today. We have over 400 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. Um, from both rural, urban, and suburban communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Mexico, United Arab Emirates, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's really a, a bit of a global call, actually, with all of you on the call today. Um, today's program is supported by AbbVie and the Diana Napoli Fund. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have uh, wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Gralla. Dr. Gralla is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Gralla is going to be addressing why some chemotherapy agents cause nausea and vomiting and how healthcare teams approach prevention of nausea and vomiting. And he will also address communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague. And actually, Dr. Gralla, I have to say, in addition, has really helped to really, he's really been the architect of today's program in many ways, has helped to set this program up in terms of who the speakers are and actually the content as well. So with great pleasure, I turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gralla. Well, thank you so much, uh, Carolyn. Uh, hello, and thanks to all. I'm uh, Richard Gralla. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing this program, which deals with this common concern for many people about getting anti-cancer therapy, and that is the prevention of nausea and vomiting. We have a wonderful panel here today with leading and accomplished experts. My colleagues are highly regarded worldwide, not only for their knowledge and experience, but also for their skills in delivering excellent care. Uh, Carolyn Mester has asked me as she outlined to review uh, briefly a few topics as background for the program. And again, these are why is it that we even have nausea and vomiting with some cancer chemotherapies? How do we approach these problems? How do your healthcare teams approach prevention of nausea and vomiting? And why is communicating with your healthcare team a priority? So let's just first start on that topic. Why concentrate on communication? I can think of several reasons, but a couple of major ones are one, to individualize care. And I hope that you'll see in my presentation and those of my colleagues why that's key. The short answer is so that your care can have as positive an effect as possible and that it will contribute to preserving and improving quality of life. And the second is to maximize benefit. 
There have been remarkable changes in cancer care, including in new modalities of treatment and new ways to prevent side effects. And this has occurred over just the past very few recent years. It's fair to say that we're in an evolutionary period of how to maximize the benefit of these newer methods. Supportive care, prevention of side effects and maintenance of quality of life, is at least as individualized and complicated as the anti-cancer care itself. A relatively new term is called precision medicine. While many definitions of that are possible, one that I think works well comes from the National Institutes of Health of the U.S. and states that precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and treatment that takes into account people's individual variations in genes, environment, and lifestyle. Some issues and problems occur only in some individuals and not in others, and that's true with different approaches to anti-cancer therapy and nausea and vomiting. Through communication, all can be aware of risks or lack of risks, all of which helps in having the best remedy or prevention applied. There's another new term called patient-reported outcomes, or PROs. This reflects that in many areas, including pain control, including nausea, including anxiety, only through patient and family input can we truly understand the issues that need to be addressed. Of course, in many instances, your doctor or nurse may raise the issue, but there's no reason to stand on ceremony. It's fine to bring it up first, and it's appreciated. Physicians and nurses, social workers, pharmacists, among others in oncology, spend a great deal of time educating themselves and updating themselves about the best approaches to a variety of problems, including today's topic, nausea and vomiting. And so do their oncology organizations, such as ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, Oncology Nursing Society, Multinational Association for Supportive Care and Cancer, our host today, Cancer Care, and others. Many of these organizations convene panels of experts to review the most significant information on various topics on a very frequent basis. And this includes in-depth reviews on the highly important topic of prevention of nausea and vomiting. The panels review the latest research and put that into a context with all known information on this key topic. When taking the best quality evidence, the panel writes and publishes rigorous guidelines. These guidelines are then available to your healthcare team so that the highest quality knowledge can be put into place in your care. And these guidelines are available in a variety of languages, which is important since we have people from all over the world on this call. So there's your healthcare team, and that team is bolstered by the guidelines published by expert panels. By working together, much will be accomplished. I know that Ms. Clark Snow will have much more to say about this important topic. Patients and families have told us that the control of nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy is at or near the top of their concerns. This is why it's really worth our discussing this important issue, an area in which, again, great progress has been made recently and in which continued improvements are occurring. Vomiting we all are aware of and we've all experienced, also called emesis, and nausea, the feeling that you might vomit, can be a problem to address and prevent in all aspects of cancer care, that is, in surgical approaches, initial diagnosis or treatment postoperatively, 
with radiation therapy or with chemotherapy. But today we're focusing on nausea and vomiting specifically related to chemotherapy and newer systemic treatments. But when we take questions, all areas are fair for discussion. Again, fortunately, a lot of progress has been achieved, and my colleagues will go into quite a bit of detail. Most people are not aware of the progress that has been made. I wish that the news media, television, magazines, newspapers, would get it right, and the movies too. It's safe to say that the majority of people getting anti-cancer treatment today will not experience nausea or vomiting from it, given the newest approaches, although indeed some may. Why can nausea and vomiting occur with chemotherapy? And that is because nausea and vomiting are reflexes, are normal protective responses. Typically, of course, we take in foreign substances, such as through eating, by mouth. But the body didn't evolve to sense that we could also have substances given to us through the vein intravenously. So the reaction uh, to these foreign substances is through the gastrointestinal tract. There are important sensors or receptors in the gut and in the brain. The brain monitors chemicals in the blood and cerebrospinal fluid, not just in the stomach. It's tricky, but these are important protective reflexes. But of course, we want to turn off these reflexes when they're not needed. So knowing these mechanisms of how the body senses these foreign substances, such as anti-cancer medicine, is key. And that's how we make progress by understanding these mechanisms. This gives us leads on how to prevent emesis. If we can block the important receptors or sensors temporarily during the time we need to, we can prevent nausea and vomiting. We learned several years ago that there are certain serotonin receptors that are important in the process in both the gastrointestinal tract and the brain. Today, we block those receptors with serotonin cetron drugs, which when used properly are very helpful and have very few side effects for most people. We then learned that there's another pathway associated with a very small naturally occurring protein, which is a neurotransmitter called substance P. It also is important, especially in the brain, and we have medicines that address this pathway called NK1 receptor antagonists. These are very important and also have very few side effects for most people. An older class of medicines, those related to cortisone or corticosteroids, also have an important role for many. Recently, it's been shown that the brief use of an older tranquilizer called olanzapine can be helpful in addition in some settings. So we have quite a few tools that can be applied. Dr. Schwartzberg will go into more detail about the use of these medicines. We learned that there are two clear needs, preventing what's called acute emesis, the nausea and vomiting on the day of treatment. And the second is to get better results with delayed emesis, that nausea and vomiting which can occur in the days following the chemotherapy. It turns out that there are certain risk factors which differ among individuals and are valuable for us to know about when giving the right preventive medicine. First of all, most important is the actual chemotherapy that a person is likely to receive or targeted agent. The person's gender, it's more difficult to control emesis in women than in men. A person's age group, it's more difficult to control emesis in younger people than in older folks. 
And there are several more factors as well that can be useful. So based on these and some other factors, your healthcare team can individualize your preventive medica medications to uh, control nausea and vomiting. Should a person get just one anti-nausea medicine or two or three or even four? Would that prevention include a Cetron, an NK1 agent, a corticosteroid, or even some other drugs? This is the way that care is individualized, and this is all based on a lot of very good evidence that uh, is shared among oncology professionals. The Cetrons and NK1s are very focused on one pathway each, but recently these other agents, such as the cortisone-like medicines and and uh, some others can have, which are not so focused, can have benefit for some. Newer approaches include how the medicines are given. There are oral medications, including the use of even a single pill given just once that can be useful for many. And there are medicines that are given by intravenously right before chemotherapy and perhaps continued by pills the day, days after, and there are even some patches that can have use. How can the antimedic medicines be given as effectively and conveniently as possible? And that is all part of what your cancer care team will do for you. All of these topics, including more on communication and steps that you should be aware of, will be addressed by my colleagues in the next presentations. And I'd like now to return the program uh, back to Dr. Carolyn Messner. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grawa. That was wonderful and so such a wonderful way to start off the call um, with all the different options and, and really how important, um, you know, how important it is to um, understand what, what um, actually causes um, chemotherapy-induced um, nausea and vomiting and really how, it's, how many things can be done to prevent it. And now our next speaker is Dr. Lee Schwartzberg. Dr. Schwartzberg is Executive Director, West Cancer Center, Chief Division of Hematology Oncology, Professor of Medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And Dr. Schwartzberg is going to address current research directions to improve control of nausea vomiting, new agents, and prevention strategies. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Schwartzberg. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be talking to all of you today and with my colleagues uh, uh, about this very, very important topic. So Dr. Grala did a wonderful job of uh, level setting about what we do in general. And what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is go into a little bit more detail about the way we use anti-nausea and anti-vomiting drugs as prevention when you're starting chemotherapy. And I want to emphasize the word prevention. What we've learned over the last 30 years of research is that the best approach to prevent to nausea and vomiting related to chemotherapy is to use a preventative strategy where we're giving the antiemetic drugs, the classes that you heard about prior to the chemotherapy itself to block those sensors and receptors that Dr. Rala mentioned and keep them blocked over the period of risk, which in general for most chemotherapy agents and for most drugs uh, is around five to seven days. So typically, when you have nausea and vomiting, outside of that first few days after the chemotherapy, assuming you're getting an intravenous formulation, there could be other reasons for nausea and vomiting. And this is an important point to make for patients 
if there is nausea and vomiting that occurs outside the window of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, there are other reasons that people with cancer might have nausea and vomiting, and this is why it's so important to communicate with your healthcare team if you have questions. Don't simply assume that, yeah, it's the, it's the chemotherapy and that's an anticipated side effect. First of all, as Dr. Grala said, and I want to stress, the majority of patients with effective anti-emesis prophylaxis or prevention should not have vomiting or even nausea. And although they're, they're two different things, and we'll talk about that in a, a minute about the research that's ongoing. Now, in terms of the personalization of your treatment, we also personalize your therapy with regard to the risk of whether there will be emesis and nausea. And so over the years, we've established a classification, which is part of those evidence-based guidelines that Dr. Brown mentioned. And we sort each agent or combination of chemotherapeutic agents into a different category by their risk of causing emesis or, or vomiting. So the highest group is those agents that in the absence of uh, getting prophylactic treatment with these preventive medicines, most patients would actually have emesis. And there's a few drugs that we use today where that still is uh, important, and particularly the platin agents, which are still very commonly used agents, and the anthracyclines like adriamycin. Although we're in an exciting era of many new therapies, targeted treatments, and immunotherapy, which have different toxicities and side effects, it's still true that chemotherapy is used for many patients and will likely be so uh, for the foreseeable future. So even these older agents remain uh, used in a way that we have to prevent their toxicities, including nausea and vomiting. Many chemotherapy drugs fall into the moderate uh, emesis risk or vomiting risk, and these are many of the other agents that are used for common cancers like lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, and so forth. Then there's a larger group of agents and a growing group of agents that have a low risk where they need less prevention and many that have a minimal risk of causing uh, nausea and vomiting. So each drug is, uh, is characterized into a group, and then we look at the combination of therapies that you're getting together and establish a level of risk. The reason that's important is that what the evidence has said that to use the drug classes that Dr. Gallen mentioned, the Cetrons or the serotonin-3 antagonists and the NK1 antagonists and corticosteroids, we use different levels for different uh, levels of em emesis risk or vomiting risk. So for those patients who have a high risk of vomiting, we use a stronger three or four drug combination to prevent the emesis that occurs over the first five days. And we really kind of break it into the first day is, uh, is most likely for some drugs and then over the next several days for others. So if you are getting a combination like adriamycin and cyclophosphamide, for example, or carboplatin or cisplatin, we typically give a three-drug combination one from each category, a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, an NK1 antagonist, and dexamethasone. And if patients are at higher risk, 
uh, female gender and uh, younger patients, frequently they'll also get the fourth category of drug, the olanzapine that Dr. Grala mentioned, with lesser degrees of emesis, moderately or, or lower, typically two drugs are used. Uh, or one drug, depending on the risk. The idea here is to personalize the treatment and make sure that you get appropriate and optimal prevention strategy against nausea and vomiting for your particular type of, uh, of risk based on the chemotherapy you're getting. Now, the research is going in many different directions. I think most recently we've been excited about the research studies that have looked at uh, new NK1 receptor antagonists, and we've seen combination therapies, which are more convenient for a patient. So combining a 5-HG3 receptor antagonist and an NK1 receptor antagonist together, either in a single capsule or in a single IV administration, makes this more convenient for the patients. And at the same time, we're trying to reduce the side effects associated with chemotherapy, we're also trying to make uh, the treatment uh, more convenient for patients because our goal is to impact as minimally as possible on quality of life by giving you therapy that can help your cancer. The current strategies for research are focusing on nausea because we really have, uh, for the most part, accomplished prevention of vomiting with the strategies that you already heard from the effective drugs. But we still have a lingering problem with uh, nausea, which occurs, and some drugs are more likely to do this than others. And whether or not there are other pathways that are more likely in the brain or in the intestine to uh, render a patient more frequently to get nausea on a long-term basis is being uh, evaluated now in research studies. And we're excited about the possibility that we can prevent any nausea and any vomiting in the future. In addition, we're looking at some of these other um, central nervous system receptors and targets and seeing if other, it's a very complex system that's built up from uh, over, uh, over the eons of evolution to uh, be a redundant system that keeps you from uh, that keeps you on alert for toxic substances. So there are multiple redundancies. And in trying to attack all of them together, we can make more progress. So there are newer drugs being developed now that will attack multiple receptors and inhibit them that may be involved with the nausea process or the vomiting process. And so we've come so long in the uh, last 30 years, we've come so far in terms of being able to prevent this, I want to stress that for those people who are just starting chemotherapy or starting a new type of chemotherapy where they're concerned about nausea and vomiting, that three-quarters of patients with even the strongest nausea-provoking regimens can be rendered not having this side effect today. And we also have other strategies for people that have that require additional medications going forward. So I think the present is bright and the future is brighter still. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you very, very much, Dr. Schwarzberg. That was really wonderful and very informative. And just um, 
a lot of good information for everybody, and uh, thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Rebecca Clark Snow, who is an oncology nurse, and she is uh, will um, an, she is an oncology supportive care consultant, and she will be addressing um, uh, the role of the oncology nurse in preventing side effects and the important role of clinical trials. I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rebecca Clark-Snow. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and thank you, Dr. Grala and Dr. Schwartzberg, for your comprehensive review and making my portion of this talk so much easier. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to speak to everyone this afternoon. Supportive care for our patients is such a critical part of the overall treatment plan. One of the most important roles for oncology nurses is the prevention and management of treatment-related side effects. Nurses must have a working knowledge of the indications for each chemotherapy drug as well as their potential side effects because some drugs have the potential, as we've heard, to cause more or less nausea and vomiting than others. We need to be able to recognize the emetic potential of each drug. We've heard about evidence-based guidelines this afternoon that are available for physicians and advanced practice providers to use when determining and ordering the most effective regimen to prevent chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. As members of a multidisciplinary team, pharmacists and nurses also value the importance of guidelines and refer to them on a daily practice, in their daily practice. There are several key areas that are especially important for oncology nurses as we develop relationships with new patients and caregivers, as well as maintaining relationships with every established patient. They include, as we've heard, communication, education, follow-up, and advocacy. In order for all patients to experience an optimal outcome while undergoing treatment, specifically prevention of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, as both Dr. Grawl and Dr. Schwartzberg so eloquently discussed, we must provide as much relevant information as possible about a specific treatment prior to the first treatment and reinforce the information discussed by the physician at all treatment points, always allowing time for questions or concerns, assuring that patients agree with the treatment plan outlined. Lately, this has been referred to as shared decision-making. Uh, and there are five essential steps for effective shared decision-making. They include seeking the patient's participation, helping patients explore and compare treatment options as discussed by the physician, assessing patient values and preferences, which are very important, and reaching a treatment decision with the patient which is evaluated by the physician. Regarding supportive care medication, including uh, antinosin meds, the dose frequency, and possible side effects are reviewed. If the chemo drug has the potential to cause a great deal of nausea and vomiting, the preventive meds would possibly continue after treatment for a number of days, as Dr. Schwartzberg just mentioned. Once again, it would be the oncology nurse's responsibility 
to be certain that patients are aware of the importance of continuing to take the medications as prescribed, even if they're feeling well and have had no nausea or vomiting. I believe it is of the utmost importance to follow up with our patients, all patients in the days following treatment, which for some may be a vulnerable period with some degree of delayed nausea and vomiting. This is also an opportunity to check in and ask if all meds are being taken, if there are any concerns that need to be brought to the attention of their physicians, such as difficulty with eating, with drinking, um, other problems such as diarrhea. We want to know all these things. And we'd really like to know them prior to patients returning to clinic for the next appointment so we can address them in a timely manner. Providing patients with specific tools can also help to ensure a successful treatment. Some of these tools might include the following. Chemotherapy and anti-nausea medication fact sheets, a copy of the signed informed consent for treatment, a calendar outlining future treatments, blood draws, scheduled x-rays, CAT scans, etc. We have discussed the possibility of keeping a diary to be used after treatment, documenting any possible side effects, any episodes of nausea and vomiting, medications taken, or any concerns to be uh, discussed with your physician or nurse. Phone numbers to include how to reach the physician and nurse during the day, what to do in the event of an emergency, and who to contact after hours and on weekends if necessary. I think this is really important. When healthcare providers collaborate as a team and include patients and caregivers in making important decisions, when we uh, provide appropriate teaching so that patients are fully informed, when we administer guideline-recommended anti-nausea medications and follow-up after treatment, we will be providing patients with the best possible opportunity to achieve excellent treatment outcomes. I believe I also have a few minutes to talk about clinical trials because it was through patient participation in clinical trials that we now have effective uh, medications to prevent uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Both Dr. Grawl and Dr. Schwartzberg have been uh, very much involved in the research of many of these medications, and we're grateful for their participation and contributions. Clinical trials not only investigate new treatments, they also determine the safety and efficacy of novel agents, or they can modify an existing regimen. Your oncologist should inform you if there is a research study that may be beneficial to your care. You should always feel comfortable bringing up this possibility yourself, especially if you've done some research and believe there's a trial you may be qualified to enter into. Participation in clinical trials is always voluntary, and just as informed consents are assigned prior to receiving conventional treatment, it's extremely important that the purpose of the trial including risks and benefits, duration of participation, if there are costs associated with participation that are paid for by the study, or if they're considered to be standard of care and therefore covered by your insurer. 
All of these things will be discussed by your physician and then reviewed by the research coordinator. All questions regarding the study must be answered to every patient's satisfaction prior to signing the study consent. I found this statistic which I thought you might find interesting, which puts the magnitude of clinical trials in perspective. In 2018, the National Institute of Health noted that there were more than 288,000 trials available worldwide. 64,000 of these trials were cancer-related. The National Cancer Institute's website, www.cancer.gov, contains a comprehensive list of available trials here in the U.S. Oncology research is just one more area that oncology nurses as trial coordinators are part of the multidisciplinary team dedicated to improving and advancing patient care. The Internet is an important source of cancer information that is available to supplement information provided by your healthcare provider. I have several websites you may find helpful that I'll share with our host, Carolyn Messner, who I believe can post them on the Cancer Care website. Thank you very much for allowing me to share this information with you this afternoon and participate in this important teleconference. Uh, thank you so much, um, uh, Ms. Clark Snow. That was really excellent and really um, extended what we understand of what oncology nurses offer and just really the importance of getting really very careful treatment for any nausea or vomiting, anything that anyone has experienced, anything, anything like that. That's very important. And we're going to take questions in just a minute. I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from all of you. So please um, start preparing your questions. Um, I will, some of you are already putting them, posting them already. So, um, But I, I just want to say um, cancer care is a national organization, and we're accessible to people all over the United States. And um, we also do, we'll take sort of emails from people internationally as well. Um, and our services include both practical and financial assistance. That is really the financial assistance is for people in the U.S. only. Um, we also offer counseling services or a chance to talk with someone about your concerns. And that is available to anyone who wants to contact us. And that um, you can call our 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org, and you can post your question or concern. Um, perhaps um, also very important is we have a Cancer Care for Kids program, helping children understand when there is cancer in their family um, and understanding how to talk with them. We have these education programs. We offer publications, and we have a very robust website. Many of you have obviously discovered that because you've registered for this program, some of you online. So with that being said, um, I would say that um, we're now ready to take questions. And so, Norma, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, I'm going to try to take as many of the questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you would like to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question from one of our online participants, and um, I'm going to start this question with Dr. Grala. Um, I feel nauseous around bedtime, which makes it hard to sleep. Do you have any tips to alleviate the nausea? And this is, I take it, after receiving cancer chemotherapy. Um, yes. 
Yeah, if that's so, I think that uh, you know I mentioned uh, um, uh, certainly you need to communicate this with your healthcare team uh, and let them know that. But it is interesting that uh, I had mentioned one of these uh, uh, newer treatments is, is a tranquilizer. Actually, that's not why it's given, not to tranquilize people, but because it has inherent anti-nausea properties. But its side effect is sleepiness. Now, you know, that wouldn't be such a bad thing around bedtime. So uh, the name of this medicine is olanzapine, also called Zyprexa. And since it has known anti-nausea properties, and if you tend to get this problem around bedtime, I would discuss that with my healthcare team. On the other hand, there could be other reasons that they might want to look into because not all the reasons we get nausea or vomiting around the time of chemotherapy uh, is due to the chemotherapy itself. So based on your own individual issues, uh, these might be things to discuss with your with your care team. Excellent. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that before we go on to the next question? Or? Um, yeah, this is uh, Lee Schwartzberg. So just one other um, point to that comprehensive discussion by Dr. Grala would be uh, sometimes uh, lifestyle changes can also help you with nausea, particularly if it's outside that window when it's more likely to be the nausea related to chemotherapy. So uh, changing the pattern of when you eat meals, uh, many people with cancer um, don't have digest quite as well, and it may be lying down may, after a meal uh, had more recently to when your bedtime is. You can move it, moving the meal earlier might help or smaller meals. This is a great thing to talk to your provider about. I think also that the timing of any uh, antiemetics that have been prescribed, um, you know, you might decide to uh, look at the timing and, and, and maybe take that 30 minutes or more before you go to bed uh, to see if that helps as well. But I think Dr. Grala's information about our newer uh, medication, it's, it's, it's shown to be uh, – provide some exciting uh, efficacy. So I'd certainly, as you said, mention that to your your physician and, and see if that's something that might be available to you as well. Excellent. Wow, thank you. So this, this, you can see our entire team is addressing your question, so that's a wonderful chance to have your question addressed, not just by one person, but by everybody on the team. That's, thank you so much for adding to it. Um, all of you being so wonderful. Um, and our next question, and I'll give this to Dr. Schwartzberg, um, should I take anti-nausea medicine before starting chemotherapy? Yeah, the, the answer to that is an emphatic yes. So we're much better off trying to prevent the nausea and vomiting that occurs with chemotherapy than trying to treat it. Now, sometimes we have to do both, and we have additional medicines that can be used after what was felt to be uh, adequate preventive strategies. But in every case, if you're having uh, chemotherapy that has a moderate or high chance of causing nausea and vomiting without prevention, that taken. There are a variety of different ways they can be administered. We have all oral regimens and uh, that can be pills that can be taken 30 minutes before the chemotherapy starts. 
to an hour before, and that typically is done in the clinic where you're getting uh, the therapy, but in other countries and in other settings, it could well be done at home, and those could be administered. Uh, in the United States, typically more common is giving an intravenous cocktail, if you will, of the two or three medication classes that we all talked about, which um, typically would be given beforehand. And then, um, as Ms. Clarkson mentioned, there are other medications which sometimes are given for several days, still preventive, but they're given because they last only for a day or so, so they have to be continued through that period of risk for the first four or five days after the chemotherapy. Awesome. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that as well? Uh, I'd just like to emphasize the points that uh, Dr. Schwartzberg mentioned, and that was uh, that we typically take these anti-nausea medicines, anti-vomiting medicines to prevent nausea or vomiting, and we take them somewhere around an hour or half an hour before chemotherapy, and that's true for most of these uh, circumstances. Now, there is an odd circumstance for people who might have had problems before called anticipatory nausea and vomiting. This is best prevented uh, by not making that allowing it to happen at all, but should it happen, then on rare occasions, those occasions, sometimes some different medications are given starting a few days ahead. But for the typical person, uh, it's exactly as Dr. Kortzberg outlined, it's shortly before you receive chemotherapy. Awesome, thank you. And anyone else want to add to that? Okay. okay. Um, so um, this question, um, so this is for um, Ms. Clark Snow. Um, what, uh, since my mother started chemotherapy, she doesn't eat much. She doesn't vomit, but is losing quite a bit of weight. I'm afraid she is not getting adequate nutrition. When should I worry? Do you have any tips? Yeah, that's you know, that's, that's, that's a good question and a, and a, a, a common concern. Um, I think... What's important to do is to maybe take note of, of what she eats during the day, um, and then you, you'll really need to discuss this with with your nurse and physician who can perhaps refer her to one of the nutritionists uh, who can really sit down with her and go over exactly what she's eating, what she likes, what she dislikes, um, you know, what the difficulties are in relationship to her uh, treatment and, and really make some good suggestions about um, some foods that may be high in protein and calories that would be uh, help her get through this difficult period. Um, anorexia is a difficult problem for a lot of our patients undergoing treatment, and we certainly don't want patients to lose more weight than they need to. Um, so I think there are certainly resources available, hopefully within your own institution, uh, with people that can address this and help her get through this difficult period. Excellent. Thank you. And anyone want to add to that? Um, okay. Um, so this is a question for Dr. Brawler. Um, it's about how much liquid should I drink each day? I can only take around two to three glasses a day. Well, um one of the best things to do is not to get dehydrated. And uh, depending on what chemotherapy one is getting, it, it's even more important than that. So 
Um, but it can be difficult taking fluids, uh, indeed. So um, a typical goal for most people, depending on individual factors, though, would be something close to two quarts a day. And that's certainly much more than two or three glasses, unless they're much bigger glasses than I'm used to. So uh, keeping hydrated is, is really important. You need to discuss with your doctor why this is true or not. And um, <clears throat> you need to, when you think about it, it's only a few ounces per hour um, if, we're, uh, if you start to work on it beginning in the day. Uh, early in the day, and just taking a little bit at a time rather than a lot. Having nutritious fluids adds to the areas that uh, Ms. Clark Snow was talking about, so you can have fluids that you like, which is great, that have the right texture or temperature or thickness or thinness that you like, but can also be a source of added value if they happen to have calories and other aspects to them. So I think that if you're really only able to take in 20, 30 ounces a day, you're going to get behind, and it is really important to bring that up to the care team to look at uh, taking frequent small sips to really measuring how much you're taking, but to make your healthcare team aware of it so that they can make sure that uh, uh, you can uh, start uh, uh, to get ahead of the game. Because other problems result as well. Not only can your blood pressure fall and you can get dizzy, but it contributes to constipation. And again, it's necessary for some chemotherapeutic agents to make sure that somebody is well hydrated. And making sure you bring that up before the weekend comes along or you have to go to the emergency room or something is really important and to have people help you and to investigate why this is such an issue for you. Excellent. That's so important. Thank you. And anyone want to add to that? Uh, I think yeah, Karen. Just, just, okay. just to add just a, a, a quick note, um, to try to understand what the reason is behind the difficulty in drinking. Is it, in fact, due because she has some nausea? Um, then that would need to be addressed. Um, and, you know, when you're, you're not feeling well, drinking and eating just certain things that you're really 100% committed to. So make sure that there, there's something close by to sip on throughout the day and uh, making that available, changing it up, once again, finding what likes and dislikes are, and really discussing it with your physician, too, because as Dr. Gala mentioned, we we ultimately don't want anyone to end up in the emergency room or in the treatment area getting IV fluids if we can, you know, assess the situation and, and fix it at home. And I just want to emphasize that last point as well. The communication with your healthcare team is so critical. And frequently um, patients, for one reason or another, they don't want to bother their doctor or they're concerned or they think the symptom will go away and they'll just give it a little extra time. I would endorse, and I think all three of us would endorse, um, taking a very proactive approach to communication about any symptoms you're having, whether it's dehydration or nausea or constipation, because we have so many resources we can help you with. And we're in an era now where 
the research on patient-reported outcomes that Dr. Grala mentioned is expanding, and we understand the value of measuring these and intervening quickly on any symptoms you have. And they may e- there's even research that suggests that helps people live longer and happier. So we need to know about it, and whether it's through a phone call to a triage nurse, a phone call to your physician, to your personal nurse, to the infusion nurse, or uh, a digital device that asks you about your symptoms, use those things. And increasingly, there'll be more avenues to communicate between the provider and the patient and caregivers. And the more you communicate, the more effective the treatment will be and the more we can help control your symptoms. So important. Thank you all. This is very important for everyone to take in and really remember them. That just going to your healthcare team as early as possible. Anything that bothers you, that's really so important. And our next question, um, Norma, from the telephone, I think, with someone. Jennifer H., your line is open. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering about complementary techniques, in particular, for example, uh, do you feel that C-bands work? Um, Are there particular foods to be avoided? And, of course, the herbal question. Okay. Well, Jennifer, thank you for those questions. Um, Dr. Grawa, do you want to start with that one? Okay. uh, Let's start in in many ways. Uh, I I think that... uh, you know, um, we call these complementary approaches as opposed to alternatives, and uh, you, you've brought them up. If you are in any setting, including nausea and vomiting, using complementary things such as herbal uh, preparations or others, please do make sure that your uh, doctor and nurse are aware of them because some of these uh, uh, have been shown to um, interfere with the mechanisms of the treatments that your doctor and nurse are, are, are giving you. So it's really important that everybody's aware of what everybody is taking. Um, it's funny that there's not a specific diet that can help prevent nausea or vomiting, but there are definitely foods that we may not like that as individuals around the time that we're receiving chemotherapy. And uh, it's important to recognize what foods sometimes people find strong odors and other things to be unpleasant, and uh, that's there. It has often been said not to eat fried foods or heavy foods, but it's not clear whether that's true or not. But if that seems to be true for you as an individual, that really uh, is important. There has been a long history and popularity of things that contain ginger. This is, uh, and what different preparations... um, uh, the evidence waxes and wanes. It's not entirely clear. My guess is that ginger-type preparations are helpful for nausea and vomiting of lesser causes, of an upset tummy that people get frequently. But unfortunately, the reflex involved with chemotherapy seems to overwhelm that a little bit. Um, there's a literature on acupuncture and acupressure. There may be some minor benefits, but... Most of the people that I know that are involved, uh, like Dr. Jun Lee at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, don't feel that that is the strongest role um, uh, as such. Uh, so whereas some people find that these bands, which used to be uh, more uh, prevalent, can be useful, um, there are many people who have been a bit disappointed in them. So 
So what I would say is, first and foremost, the, the major medications that uh, Dr. Schwartzberg and, and I discussed are, are really key. These are an order of magnitude better than what we used to have, uh, number one. Number two, that most herbal preparations don't seem to be too helpful, um, uh, and that one has to find what diet is best for one. Uh, the other topic that maybe you didn't, maybe you mentioned, maybe you didn't, is the more popular herb, and that's cannabis. And um, it is true that cannabis, marijuana, and such preparations do have some anti-nausea properties. They're not very strong, but there are some anti-nausea properties to them. They're not major medications for this in terms of large testing and uh, other areas, but it's not that they don't have some efficacy. Um, so you asked a lot of questions. It would be kind of fun to talk about them at length, but I'll stop at that point. Thank you so much, Dr. Gala. And does anyone else want to add to that? I just want to just agree with Dr. Gala that it's important to, if if there are some medications or herbs that you're interested in using, just run them past your physician uh, to make sure that they are something that you can take and complement the uh, prescribed uh, evidence-based uh, uh Antiemetics that that have been prescribed for you. We certainly want, don't want any harm to come to you from taking uh, the, uh, the other medications—not medications, but uh, complementary uh, agents that that you're interested in. And very often, and and sometimes, you know, you you will be able to take those in addition to your conventional anti-nausea medications, once again, as long as they don't interfere uh, with those medications or any of the other medications that you're taking on a daily basis. Excellent. Thank and you. The only thing, yeah. um, Carolyn, just one point about uh, cannabis, which is becoming so much more widely available now, either in states that it's approved for medicinal purposes or for recreational purposes. Make sure your physician knows about it, uh, but particularly if you're in a state where it's not approved, but you have some means of getting it and you feel it has some uh, benefits on your health uh, that you're using it, because we want to make sure that we have a firm grasp of all the active agents you're taking, and there are many properties of cannabis that have to be taken into account when you're getting some of these other medications we're giving, including um, the tranquilizer-type medication. So very, very important. I will say that we uh, we need to learn more about the effects of cannabis on nausea and vomiting, uh, particularly THC in more pure form or other psychoactive agents, and that research is ongoing now as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, and this one is for Ms. Clark Snow. Um, uh, so I remember my grandfather suffering from severe um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, which makes me anxious about my impending treatment. And then how have nausea and vomiting treatments progressed in recent years, and do symptoms vary per person or cancer to cancer? So if you could address this, this is a long question, but it probably yeah. will help people to understand. Yeah. That's that's a, that's an interesting question and, and not an uncommon question. I think, 
you know, several of us, many of us have had family members and loved ones who have, have undergone treatment and for one reason or another didn't have a really good time, not necessarily good time, but a good outcome as far as uh, preventing or controlling uh, their nausea and vomiting with, without knowing what uh, your grandfather received. It's, it's, it's difficult to understand exactly what happened, but certainly as Dr. Grawl and Dr. Schwartzberg have mentioned over the past several years, new drugs have been approved uh, that are given in combination with other excellent anti-nausea medicines. And as they also mentioned, most patients, you know, really just don't have the the nausea and vomiting uh, that we saw years ago. Um, I can tell you from my own experience as an oncology nurse and after having done this for a number of years, which I, I won't recount, um, I've seen some remarkable progress. So I would say that, you know, it's it's, it's unfortunate that your loved one had a difficult time uh, going through that treatment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have that same experience. And I would just trust your physician and nurses to review the, the best regimen possible for you. Um, and if you have any questions or concerns, to really just bring them up and explain that too. Um, you know, very often... Uh, guidelines are written according to hospital policy. If there are medications that you particularly uh, heard about that have concerns about, bring that up with your physician. Maybe perhaps they can uh, talk about substituting another medication. But in any event, I, I think you should take uh, solace in knowing that we've come a long way from uh, years ago when patients did not really do that well uh, in controlling or preventing uh, nausea and vomiting. So, and I wish you all of the best. Thank you. And Dr. Gall, do you want to add to that? I'd just like to echo a little more. I agree 100% with what Ms. Clark Snow said. And, uh, but just as you have shared your concerns with us on this call today, please do share your concerns with your healthcare team and you might want to go online and look. The American Society of Clinical Oncology has uh, ASCO, has portals for patients that can explain this, and um, uh, many other groups, and so you can educate yourself a little bit. But uh, while we don't know what your anti-cancer care will be uh, and what medicines you're going to receive, my guess is that you can be very much reassured and that the chances of your uh, doing much better than your grandfather did is very high. And so, um, you know, if you discuss that with your team, maybe educate yourself online a little bit, I think you'll be somewhat relieved, and uh, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if you do very well. It is interesting that many people, of course, have that experience with their family, which was many, many years ago, and mm -hmm. assume the same thing will happen to them. And it's really, I hope people take that away from the call today, but... Um, that the world has changed so dramatically. Um, exactly. And, yeah. and I think that's the reason we're having this program today is to be able to get that news out because, as I mentioned, the television and movies, they, they really haven't learned anything and don't know this. So it's it's very important because isn't it great to, 
yes, there are things to worry about that we all have to be concerned about when we have cancer, but there are also things not to have to worry about anymore, and, and that can be really uh, a, a very good uh, aspect, too. But one other thing I might also mention is, you know, the 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 fact that in, in many institutions, you know, there are uh, support groups or nurses can put you in touch with another patient who perhaps uh, is receiving a similar treatment and they can discuss, uh, you know, their own personal experiences if you're open to that as well. Um, I, I mean, I... I, I Understand that that you know hearing positive results from other people as well as Dr. Grawa mentioned going online and, and as we mentioned in Vinegar Carol, lots of of resources for you all to look at where you can read information and perhaps look at videos which explain this in great detail. Great oh, ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that's wrong because there's so many resources out there. Also, when you go online, just be aware that you may occasionally hear from an outlier who's really having a hard time. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's going to happen to you, and that's something to be very exactly. much aware of. Um, you know, so and you know, and also if you join a support group, join one that is facilitated by an oncology nurse or an oncology social worker. So you're really mm-hmm. getting someone there who's who's cross-checking whatever's being brought up in the meeting. That's really important. So you're really getting accurate information. That's so important. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. I realize we could go on all afternoon, but we, of course, said this would be an hour program. And so I want to thank our speakers, first of all, because you've all been um, just fantastic speakers. And although you can't hear us all applauding, we are. It was a wonderful call and one that we hope to do again and, uh, as often as we can because it is so important um, for, for all of you on the call today and for others in the future as well. Um, and I, um, I also want to remind you that... Um, that we have many programs like this coming up and that you'll be getting information about them. Now, some of you have still have questions that you've not had answered, and even for those of you who've had your questions answered, we still would recommend that you, of course, go back to your treating healthcare team, um, and um, they're a great resource, and you'll be getting lots of other organizations to contact just for backup information, because I know all of you like to go to really other other sources of information, but really your healthcare team knows the most about you. But we do want you to go to credible sites. That's why it's really important that um, we'll be sending you the, the sites recommended by Ms. Clark Snow and by, by sites that we're probably using as, as well as resources for you. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the call today, we don't want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with um, with your cancer or with with any of the side effects, which include any of the concerns you have about cancer-related nausea and vomiting, chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting. You now have resources to to utilize. And and although I know you sometimes will feel alone because many of you are in areas where there may be maybe the only person undergoing treatment at that time or don't know anybody, none of your friends have had this experience, please know that you can listen to this call again. First of all, it is on telephone replay as well as available as a podcast. So give it a day or two and it's available to you. And also we have many other services that you can access. So again, I want to thank you for your participation on the call today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating in today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.